Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. This episode is part one of my chat with Ken Tizard of Winnipeg, Manitoba's The Watchmen. You joined The Watchmen in 94, but uh, I'm curious, between 90 and 94, what, what were you up to? Oof, uh... I came out of Newfoundland in 88 or 88, maybe, and um, came up to Toronto to, you know, play music. Um, I'd I'd grown up in Newfoundland. I played music with everybody that was back there. Um, And I actually met uh, Jody Mitchell uh, at the COCA conference in Newfoundland, I guess it was 88 or 87. Um, Yeah, so he was working for EMI Records at the time. And uh, I, I cornered him in the, out in the elevator and was like, hey, man, I just okay, I just seen him do a speech. I said, uh, I'm a young bass player here from Newfoundland. You know, what, do I, what do I have to do to make this my life? Hmm. And he said, uh, he said, get out of this. Uh, he said, get off this rock. He said, come to Toronto. He said, go to, go to somewhere where there's a music business. Hmm. And shortly thereafter, I, uh, I came up to Toronto and... Um, Opened up Now Magazine at the time. Now Magazine was still a, a paper publication in Toronto, and in the back they had a Musicians Wanted section. And the Musicians Wanted section uh, always had about 15 or 20 people looking for bass players. So every week I would uh, audition for different bands, and any band that took me, whether it was blues, reggae, rock, um, experimental, um, you know, anything, uh, I, I basically took cause I was just learning the scene and I was learning about gigging and trying to be a, a full-time musician. And I was playing around Toronto for a bunch of years with uh, a whack of bands. Um, there was one band called bone decent. Uh, and yes, Sammy, if you're listening, you're laughing again. <laughs> um, Sammy's always teased me about the, the name of, of that band and, 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 you know, to add to the joke, the, the recording we did was a was a, a cassette titled "Growl Because You Can," <laughs> and that was Bone Decent became Growl, and then Growl Because You Can was the name of the album. So Sammy always laughs at me for that uh, band title, but they were a great uh, a great group of folks. Um, Bone Decent was uh, Tony Evans and Jeanette Platana were the singers, and there was a bunch of uh, other people, and we were kind of a we were one of those Toronto bands back when the Rio Statics and those bands were just starting out, uh, 13 Engines, stuff like that. And um, it was part of the Queen Street scene, um, but we were having most of our success off at Lee's Palace, which is at the mm-hmm. corner of Bathurst uh, and Bloor. And we would do, you know, a Friday or Saturday night at Lee's Palace and fill it, which was a big deal for a, for a local Toronto band. Mm-hmm. So we were doing quite well. Um, and uh, quite well, you know, we all had day jobs, but we, you know, we played and, and you know, once a month and fill it palace and then we'd go out and play St. Catharines and Guelph and stuff on other weekends do what every Toronto band was doing and um, we got a grant to go to Russia on an exchange Mm. with another band they brought a Russian band over here and they sent us to Russia so we went to Russia Um, the band had morphed from Bone Decent into what was now called Growl this was the again Tony Evans and uh, Peter and Mark Kesper were the rest of the band uh, and myself. Peter played guitar, and Mark, his brother, played drums. And they were working at Songbird Music in Toronto. I don't know if you remember Songbird. Do you remember Songbird? I don't know. I'm a Regina guy, so uh, 
Oh, right, right. Yes. Songbird was the Queen Street music store, the used music store. It was the huge music store. Everybody went to shop for gear and trade gear and sell gear. And it was awesome. Um, And they currently play with, um, to this day, with a band called NQR Buckle out of Toronto, who are an amazing band. So Bone Decent turned into Growl and um, Growl got a grant to go to Russia. And believe me, this will tie in with the Watchmen in a minute. <laughs> um, so we went to Russia for five weeks. Wow. Um, I was 20 years old. No, I was 21. And um, I'm in Russia, and they billeted us. Hmm. So there was no hotels. It was just billeting. And basically what they did was they, they connected us with a Russian translator and somebody from the government who was part of the program to come with us. So what we ended up doing for the five weeks we were there is we just stayed in people's places, uh, youth hostels, sometimes just strange buildings. It was was a really, (laughs) really weird tour. It was Russia in 91. We arrived there the day that um, Parliament was dissolved and the White House was bombed over there. And there was, out of the six weeks we were touring, Four of them we toured under curfew. There was a 6 p.m. curfew throughout huh. the whole country. We ended up living with the, um, spending two weeks living with the Canadian um, press secretary, um, Chris Alexander, his name was at the time. We stayed with him at his, his apartment with his wife huh. because the country was in such a crazy state. It was just wild. And we had the time of our lives playing these uh, shows in Russia. But it was, I guess, that gained us enough attention when we returned um, to Canada that Breakfast TV uh, reached out to us mm. and asked uh, if we'd play on Breakfast TV. And that was the Toronto, I think there's a Breakfast TV in every major city across the, the country now, but uh, this was the Toronto, the big one, uh, down mm. at the uh, Much Music building. So we all um, we all agreed to do that, and that was like one of those 4 a.m. show-up type <laughs> things where you, you know you have to do hair and makeup and you're you're in hair and makeup by 4 15 and they're bringing you like you know muffins and coffee and you're just waiting until you play it you know 7 30 or something it's totally exhausting um and um very hard way to get ready to play a, a, a you know play rock and roll but it happens Feels 
Um, I don't know much about his business and all that, so I won't get into it. I just know that on a personal level, he's an absolutely super, super man. Uh, he's been in my life for a long time. And I have nothing but good things to say about him. But Alan Gregg had his fingers in a lot of pies. One of them was Music Express magazine. Um, I'm not sure in what way, but I know that he was around a lot. And we were changing offices as we were expanding. Music Express was had another we had a, a magazine we were doing for blockbuster the video chain as well and we were also doing a uh, we were branding something called impact and sound scanner so all these magazines were branching out so we were moving offices so we moved to a different office and it was a little larger than we needed so alan moved in um another one of the companies that he was involved with with which was a company called management trust hmm. which at that time was jake gold uh, and shelly starts and jake managed tragically hip and this new band the watchman and we were all sharing office space so jake's office was you know sort of just down the hall from mine and uh we'd see each other in the coffee room all the time so let's get back here a little bit to the um bone decent became growl went to russia came back to toronto got on city tv after city tv i go to my day job it's nine o'clock in the morning i am dead fucking tired uh, and I'm making a coffee and Jake walks in and he's standing next to me and he says, I didn't know you played bass. <laughs> and I said, yeah. I said, that's what I do. He said, I thought you were a photographer. I said, no. I said, I know a little bit about photography. I said, but I've got a good eye and I know how to work, you know, as a photo editor. I said, but I really want to be a musician. He said, you got a pretty good job here. I said, yeah. He said, uh, do you know the band, the Watchmen? And I had seen them the year before they actually played the impact Christmas party. Huh. And I had seen them uh, at the Horseshoe. And um, I said, yeah, I said, they played the Christmas party last year. A nice guy's from Winnipeg. He said, they're looking for a bass player. And I said, uh, oh, I said, no. I said, that's they're in Winnipeg. I said, I just got here from Newfoundland. I've got all this stuff going on. I got a great job. Um, you know, I said, I'm playing a ton of music. And he said, okay. And then he um, he called me over to his office at lunchtime. And he sat me down. He said, listen, he said, this, he said, this is going to be, this, this band has some new stuff written. Um, they're really going to go places. So I know what you're doing here in, in, in Toronto is important after just coming up from Newfoundland, but I'll buy you a plane ticket. All expenses paid, just go out and meet the guys, spend three days with them for a weekend, and uh, and see what happens. And I said, okay. I said, you know, let me know when it is. And this was, this, was, uh, this was late October. We had just gotten back from Russia. Like, we'd just gotten back from um, six weeks in Russia, which was wild, and I'd taken time off work for it, and just gotten back and just getting settled. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, I'm going to Winnipeg and I'm meeting this new band that I'd seen in the club. They were an indie band. They hadn't really broken yet to a point where it was like, oh, this is, it wasn't like, you know, oh my God, this band is, you know, is at the top of the charts and looking for a bass player. And there was a thousand bass players. Uh, they were still a, a fairly indie struggling band, but, you know, they had a, a, they had a national presence and they were also looking for the right person. I think they had the right thing in mind. They were looking for the right fit. I mean, there's a lot of bass players who were better than me, believe me. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I've, I've, I've learned what I need to, to get through and I do it well, but uh, there's lots of bass players who can be careful for that. But I went out and, um, you know, the, the long and short of it is I, I met them and, and we became friends. Um, but it was a strange weekend. <laughs> that weekend that we went out was very, uh, you know, I, I got a, it was Friday night. I got off the plane. I, I came from Toronto. I had on a leather jacket and a t-shirt. I think it was like December 11th at this point. Um, and I'm landing in Winnipeg. It's minus 40 with a wind chill of like minus a thousand. And I've got on a leather jacket and a t-shirt and I'm, I'm coming down the, 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 the stairs and I see the three guys and they're, and actually Sammy wasn't there. It was just Joey and Danny. 
and they're looking and they're kind of laughing. They're like, where's your jacket? And I'm like, what jacket? They're like, your winter jacket. And I'm like, this is a leather jacket. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we got, we, we went and we picked up my bass from the, from the carousel and we walked outside and the wind hit me. And man, I, I've never been that ill prepared for wind in my life. Um, <laughs> I actually thought that I actually thought my leather was going to crack. Like when I bent the arms, it was like this, you know, no, no scarf readily, you know, what leather's like on your neck when you don't have a scarf. And there's no scarf. It's freezing, and I'm like, "Whoa, where the hell am I?" <laughs> and we pull out of the uh, out of the parking lot at the Winnipeg airport, and we drive in the ruts of the road. At this point, Winnipeg had enough snow that there was like ruts, you know, like streetcar track where your car drives in. <laughs> and I was just like, "This is this is insane." I come from Newfoundland. I'm used to certain weather conditions that are extreme, but I wasn't used to this. <laughs> so we went to, you know, we drove straight to Danny's uh, mom's house, um, Feggy, and um, Feggy was, uh, she was serving her famous spaghetti dinner, <laughs> nice. and I immediately fell in love with Feggy. Um, she became my, and still is, my surrogate mom. My surrogate mom. Uh, <laughs> I love her dearly. Um, for years after joining the Watchmen, I lived in Winnipeg with her uh, every time I was in Winnipeg, which was a lot. Huh. Um, so we had dinner that night and I got to know the guys and then we went to the McLaren hotel, um, which is where McLaren furnace room is named after. Mm -hmm. And we, um, we had a jam and I took out, I opened my guitar case and, and, and took out the ugliest bass in the world. It was a taxi, <laughs> a taxi yellow leather bass with a really pointy head smoke. Sounded amazing. Um, on that first album, All Uncovered and Lusitana, that really ringy bass sound came from that bass, but it was too ugly to play live. So <laughs> I had to get my I had to get my black P, my black PJ, which became my my standard bass with the Watchmen. But uh, yeah, broke that bass out. We played through three or four songs from the Clarence Furnace from it. We played through Cracks and Run and Hide and uh, anything but that maybe. And then um, and then we sat down and we had a few beers and. We started talking about songwriting, and I said, you know, I said, I am, a, I am a writer. I'm not really interested. Joey, at that point, had written almost everything on the first record, except for the one song that Danny wrote some lyrics for. And I said, yeah, I'm really not interested in being in a band where, you know, the band isn't writing or where I can't contribute to songwriting. And, and we um, we talked around that for a while, and everybody seemed to be really interested in what I could bring to the table. And there was a song that I had been jamming with Growl at the time. Well, I hadn't been jamming with Growl. It was something that I it was kind of a groove and a vision that I had that, uh, that I tried out with growl and it didn't work and it was still fresh in my mind. So we, um, you know, when we got back to playing, I, I said, I sort of think I turned to Sammy and said, play along with this. And, and he, you know, and then Joey started playing some guitar and that turned into, I think by the time we left that night, that turned into a song called the South that huh. was on, um, in the trees.
song was, was written the first night I met those guys. Oh, wow. And uh, we spent the rest of the weekend together just getting drunk and jamming, really, and um, and uh, hanging out. Um, and I really liked the guys. It had a, and I tell you what was strange, it had a really homey vibe. It, it felt like I'd come home. Like when I grew up in Newfoundland, I was playing with, I was playing with my friends. And in Toronto, because of the way it was such a large network, I guess, you weren't really playing with friends. You were just playing with whoever was on the gig a lot of the time. And it wasn't really something that I enjoyed. And with, with growl, I felt like I was playing with friends. Um, but it was also just one of those things where it was just starting out. And when I got out to Winnipeg and played with the watchman, I just felt like this is, this feels comfortable. Like this feels like I'm actually playing with some friends. The scene out there felt different. And I thought, well, maybe it's something to consider. And then I flew home and I got a call the next day saying, if you want the gig, it's yours. Can you fly out this weekend? And I, I sort of went, oh, 
I had just met Allison. This was December. I had met Allison in May. Hmm. So I met Allison in May. Uh, we started dating in May. I had met her a little bit before. We started dating in May. And then September came. Um, I went on tour for six weeks to Russia, came back home for a week, went and auditioned for The Watchmen, then came back home for a couple days and then got the gig and was told I had five days to move to Winnipeg. <laughs> and I just kind of went, okay, no, I can't, I can't make all of this work. So, you know, I called Jake and I called the guys. I said, I said, I'm really interested. I said, but I, I'm not moving to Winnipeg. I can't do that right now. I said, I'm, I've just got settled. You know, I'm not going from, you know, the, the, the tundra of Newfoundland to the frozen barren tundra of Winnipeg. <laughs> like I, I stopped in Toronto on the way just for a second and uh, it, just, it wasn't working in my head. And, um, and finally, I guess Jake and the boys uh, spoke and, and Jake called me back and said, look, the guys are willing to make it work. Uh, they've been looking for a bass player for a while, um, and you know there, there's a connection uh, on every level, and uh, we want to make it work. Hmm. And I said, okay. So I, I did get on a plane that weekend. I flew out, and we wrote, uh, you know, like all uncovered Nusitana and and whatever was rest needed to be written for in the trees. Volvadiva, I think, had been done. Um, uh, we wrote a bunch of, of of new stuff and mixed it with some old stuff, and uh, you know, having two or three of my pieces. Uh, come, come, court, sort of the, you know, to the to the table was really nice uh, for joining a new band, being able to come in and, and you know, sort of the Watchmen wrote as a group. I know you'll probably hear different stories from everybody on this, um, and, that, and that's cool too because we all have different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, we we did group. We, you know, it was a lot of blood from the stone, and I think Joey was the only person who you know ever kind of brought in a song that was finished uh, as in like here's an acoustic guitar and a guy singing a song. And then we hmm. put the Watchmen treatment on it, which still changed the song directly, you know, incredibly. But for the most part, I think Joey was going to brought in things like that, but a lot of us brought in concepts um, or ideas for songs or just, you know, verses and choruses uh, that didn't have words. Um, we decided early on that the vision of the, the Watchmen songwriting uh, lyrically should maintain with, you know, Joey and Danny's, um, and when you have too many lyric writers in a band, this is, it, it kind of, it, it doesn't really work all the time. And they were, the Watchmen had already established themselves as the voice of Joey and Danny on the second record. Um, and, uh, you know, by the time we got to sort of brand new day and I was starting to bring in songs with lyrics, I'm like, these aren't, these aren't Watchmen tunes. These aren't Watchmen tunes. Like <laughs> I can write like all uncovered, you know, I mean, essentially, uh, you know, that was something that I wrote on bass because I liked the way the chord sounded. And I worked on it with Danny and he came up with the melody and some of the words and we brought it to the Watchmen. Same thing with Lusitana. Um, you know, there's some of those signature bass songs that came that way through me. But um, we just got along immediately, um, you know, and it was it was one of those it was one of those trips that just kind of just kind of took over everybody's lives. And, you know, here we are, I don't know how many years later now, we're still we're still deep in each other's lives. It's, uh, it's, you know, I mean, as much as, as much as at times we don't get along and at times we disagree and, you know, fucking writing the idea of writing another record seems agonizing. <laughs> um, as much as that's all true, I, I, on the other side of the coin, I have to say there's no people closer to me in my life than Joey and Danny and Sammy. Um, you know, it's just like, they, they know me, they, in some ways, they know me better than anybody. You know, I've, I've probably collectively spent more time with them than I had my my wife. You know, or or anybody else in the world. Uh, we lived together 24 hours a day for years on end. Uh, you know, we ate together, we slept together, we made music together, we wrote together, we traveled together. It was just, it, 
you don't get to share somebody's life like that and not come out with scars, but also not come out with a huge part of your heart being owned by them. You touched on it uh, briefly, but uh, it's such a, such a, a signature song and signature baseline. I mean, is there anything more you can give us on All Uncovered? On <laughs> I was on the third floor of two, whatever our address was, um, um, Danny's mom's place in Winnipeg in the little tiny bedroom that I had with a sloped ceiling on one side because that was the roof. And I think I was listening to The Police. I think it was Invisible Sun. Invisible mm. Sun, I'm pretty sure it was. And it was just like, um, it was just a specific way the chords were falling. Um, the, the particular particular harmonic structure between, I think it was, well, I changed it to an A and an F sharp. But I think it might have been a, a D and a B. Uh, and it was just kind of, it was just this haunting thing moving back. And I was listening to it, and I was like, oh, it's really, really cool. I love the way that the melodies were coming around around it. And I was kind of playing along with it. And then the track stopped, and I was sitting on it, and I was still playing with that. And it was, and I, I moved it to A so I could play the A chord. So it's, it's like on the four strings of the bass, I'm using the three upper strings, um, the A, the D, and the G string. And I'm playing sort of a, um, an octave and a five uh, for the doo-doo-doo, that little part there. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of playing it, and, I'm, and then I'm moving the other part of the chord from the A down to the F sharp, following the same thing as Invisible Sun. Um, and without kind of thinking about it, I was doing it, and then I kind of slipped into a 3-4, um, sort of 6-8 waltzy type feel, and then the chords started coming together, and, I, and I, I was playing it, I was just sitting in my room playing it, and I was been doing it for about an hour or so, and, and Danny kind of walked in, and he said, what's that? Hmm. And I said, I don't know, I said, it's just, it's just some things, and then he sat on the side of the bed, and he started humming out a melody. And then, um, and then we, you know, we kind of said, you know, oh, and then I, I could, I could maybe go to here. Me and Danny worked a little bit together on that. Like we had audio playground as well. So mm-hmm. Danny was always really interested in leading the melody following the bass line. We kind of, we kind of circled around that for the rest of the night, you know, just kind of hanging out up in the upstairs of Danny's mom's house, smoking hash, and, um, you know, jamming on this riff and he was singing and the next day at 10 o'clock, we got on the bus, uh, Corden Avenue 18, and took it down to the McLaren Hotel. <laughs> and uh, after we had our coffees and our chat with everybody, we started playing. And Danny said, me and Ken were working on this thing last night. And I think we wrote, I think by the time we left that day, all the cover was probably a song. <laughs> Thank you. 
Now, when you join a band that has, you know, one record under their belt, you know, with videos and a little bit of radio play, um, is there discussions like um, from the business side about, is it a, a four-way split? Is it like you have to uh, be in the band X amount of times before we th- we know you're one of us kind of thing? I mean, is there any discussions like that or is this kind of understood? I mean, especially with the you know, management deal coming in and I was curious about like the kind of band politics when you're kind of joining an established unit as opposed to, you know, four guys right. growing up together since high school and so forth. Well, the one thing, uh, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're working at a level where you're we're dealing with managers, agents, and record companies, mm-hmm. and if, if those things are not being discussed, <laughs> there's, there's going to be problems. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the record, con- I mean, record contracts are personnel-specific. Uh, agency uh, contracts and, you know, even things like insurance policies and all that stuff, it's all very member-specific. Mm-hmm. So... There's a lot of paperwork involved with being in a band that, you know, even though, even though the band, it's always hard to talk about this without going down the rabbit hole, which um, I believe the art, the movie Artifact explained best, um, and that rabbit hole being, you know, the, the financial um, situation of uh, of a rock band. But the long and short of it is, there's a lot of money generated by a rock band, an awful lot of money, especially a popular rock band uh, signed with a major label that's, um, you know, uh, in the top 10 regularly year after year. Uh, A band like that generates a lot of income. It doesn't come back to the artist very, very well. Um, There are, there's also a lot of expenses. So you, you need paperwork on everything and you need paperwork on, on everybody involved. So yes, when I joined the Watchmen, there was paperwork and there was discussions, um, at that point, uh, when we joined the Watchmen, there was a big publishing discussion change because I came in saying that I, you know, uh, I had to be a part of the songwriting team. I have to be able to create artistically and, and it, everything that I do, you know, you know, to create the sound and vision of this band from my point of view needs to be recognized. Um, so it brought up a lot of publishing conversations, you know, about direction and lyrics. And, you know, if, if we have three people writing lyrics, that's three different viewpoints. It might sort of order down the focus. And stuff like that, valid arguments. And, and at the time, my songwriting was more about writing songs as music than it was lyrics. My lyrics, um, you know, as a lyricist, I was still really early in my developing. I'd come from a couple years of playing in punk bands, and um, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a lot that I needed to repeat out of that. Um, and then even with you know, okay, so Pete, the old bass player, is leaving. He has a stake in this band, so. You know, there was sunset clauses. I think it was a five-year sunset clause of some sort where, you know, every year Pete's share went down a little bit and mine went up a little bit. Um, songwriting uh, splits were all discussed. Um, band property. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was it was heavy-duty stacks of paper with lawyers. And then wow, when uh, when in the trees and stuff, you know, with the you know, MCA Universal, um, there was contracts there. I mean, it, yeah, it's... It's not a contract like business when you're when you're. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about millions of dollars, you know, coming in through. Uh, we were selling at the time. I think, I think in the trees, in the trees, did a couple hundred thousand, anyways. You know, and when you're talking like fifteen bucks a pop, but a couple hundred thousand plus, you know, uh, five hundred thousand dollar marketing budgets and hundred thousand dollar video budgets, and like there's so much coming in and going out. It's it's all way above board there's no there's no uh, there's no shadiness involved so mm-hmm. yeah there's paper and contracts everywhere i'm curious with your um 
your photo editing background and, you know, and being in creative that way as well. Um, how much interest did you have in, you know, the artwork of the record, uh, the photography, you know, choosing photographers to shoot your promo pics or locations? Um, did you have any, any extra uh, influence or attention paid to those things because of your specific background? Yeah, actually I did. And, and, and in fact, they, they turned to me for a lot of, Things regarding that, like the, the, the watch, the guys in the band and management were always really good at, you know, like if there's something you're good at, like you know, let's 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 try and and work with that. Uh, and I'm not saying I did any of the art direction for the watch or stuff, but like the In the Trees album cover, mm-hmm. that was that was a piece of street art that I bought in Russia when I was there with Growl. Oh wow! And um, it's it was a it was painted it was a hand painted piece of wood. Um, that I bought off a street artist, and his name was scratched on the back, and and I think the record company had to do a legal search. They found they couldn't find this artist in Russia or something, but they exhausted, and, and you know I think there's a fee sitting for him somewhere if if he ever steps forward. Hmm. Um, so like that's the album the album cover for uh, In the Trees, and then when we did all of the artwork for that album, I think it was Ed Lee uh, was the photographer, and he was a photographer I'd been working with at the magazine for years. So me and Ed had a personal relationships so i could and i'd already i'd already worked with that at photo shoots so i ended up kind of hmm. being a part of that process as well um and then when the internet came uh, and t-shirt designs uh, you know i designed some of the early watchman t-shirts and um a couple of like the first websites and all that stuff were all designed by me they were really crappy but it was <laughs> at a day and age when, right. when things were supposed to be that way yeah. Um, you know, the message boards, all that stuff. I was really involved in, in, in being a part of the band and, and that was what I could bring into the, to the thing. And, and oftentimes, you know, with photographers, um, they were photographers that I'd worked with. So it made the experience better with the guys too. They, mm-hmm. It was often like, who's this we're working with today? And I'd be like, oh, this is, you know, we're going to John Oprah's here today. And this guy's and this lady's coming tomorrow. And it was good to have some insight into that stuff. Same with reviewers, you know, like, you know, like even Perry Stern, who wrote the review on, uh, for in the trees, not the review, the uh, the first bio for in the trees. Uh, Perry was the editor at Music Express for the three years I was yeah. there, so like we were friends too. So it was it was weird because I was kind of in the middle of everything. Now I'm not sure how how much touring Growl did or how much any other of your other previous projects did, but you know when you know in the trees is released, I imagine there's a whole bunch of touring now in order to support that record going across Canada a bunch of times. Was that the first time you had done that uh, in a band? Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was the first time doing it at that level. I mean, I think when in the trees came out, you know, I think we started doing some warm up shows in February. Anyways, you know, by the time the album came out in May, we were on the road. And I think bet- when the release date of the album came out to when the, in the treats tour officially stopped was 22 months, I think. Wow. Uh, there were several little breaks in that, but it was a long, yeah, so there was a long stretch uh, of 22 months after the album came out, and that led to the um, short break that there was for us to write and record another record. But that first 22 month tour, um, it, it was it was really just an extension of what I knew I already loved. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd been to Russia, I did that six week tour and that was like living on people's floors and, and, you know, on cots and, you know, sleeping in bars and doing all that. And I'd done some of that in Newfoundland a little bit as a teenager. And I'd, I'd been doing it around Ontario, you know, sort of scooting out to Montreal for a show and staying there and coming back. And 
I was familiar with what was involved and, and for like a 21 or 22 year old kid, it was amazing. You know, it was basically just playing music and drinking and partying. Um, and there was a lot of that going on and, um, it, it was incredible. I, I got swept up in it, you know, completely swept up in it. And, uh, and it became the lifestyle that I, I kind of still live today. You know, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not about the partying anymore as it used to be, but it's just the, it's the music lifestyle. It's the, it's the freedom to be able to go out and search for things that you're trying to create and capture them and refine them and present them to people. You know, it's, it's a really beautiful thing to be able to do. Um, and I've been really lucky to be able to do it in so many ways for so long. And in those, uh, those 22 months, you said, um, is that just Canada back and forth a bunch of times? Are you uh, doing extensive tours in Europe or U.S. or Australia? Like there was the there was the run of Canada, which kind of went for a long time, and it kind of repeated itself regularly. But then there was like, oh, we're going to go here for a couple of weeks, and we're going to go here for four weeks, and started nipping over to Australia um, and uh, doing little stints in the states. Um, we would often fly into London and pick up a small uh, truck there with a driver and bring our crew over. We'd drive up and do you know, through, um, through the Netherlands and up into Germany. Hmm. Um, and we did that, you know, countless times throughout the nineties, um, and, and had some amazing, you know, we got to do rock on ring and rock in park. Um, we also got to play in empty little weird places in Belgium and like <laughs> just the strangest, you know, you never knew where you were going. Um, and, like during that time, like from when In the Trees came out to, like I can't even, I can't even sort of put a time span on it, but there were periods of times where I would wake up, you know, I was, I was a smoker back then and, uh, and a big drinker and kind of a partier. Um, you know, I'd wake up in my hotel room, like, and kind of roll over, like, like I got a cigarette butt my, stuck to my chest and there's empty <laughs> bottles around. And I look out the window and I see, you know, the weather and I'm thinking, where am I? <laughs> I'm thinking, well, no, but hold on. It looks like fall. What season? Like, like it's like sometimes the days just didn't process because it was so nonstop. And, um, and part of what we were doing is well, like Neil Cameron. Um, I can't say enough good things about Neil Cameron. Neil Cameron has been a watchman sound guy since I joined the band and mm-hmm. before, he has also taken care of us for years, uh, all through 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 every tour we've ever done. He's been there as our road manager and our personal managers. You know, I mean, he makes sure that I'm awake when I need to be awake. He makes sure that I'm on stage when I need to be on stage. He makes sure that I'm at the interview when I need to be in the, the interview. And when you've got a machine rolling that's doing all that, and you know, we had a bunch of people on the road with us, and and really your only responsibility is to, you know, be able to perform at the show and, uh, and get to and from the shows, you know, which was taken care of by, you know, uh, the whole machine of it was taken care of by, by other people, but it was always the four of us in the van, um, which was really neat. Again, which is spending more and more time together. You mentioned being a part, you know, a bit of a party or in a, you know, you like your smokes and your drinks and this and that, and you know, 22 months in the road. I'm curious, did you make, um, you know, some friendships with other members of other Canadian bands, you know, being that on the road that long and, you know, being up and having a drink or two after the show or beforehand. I mean, did you make any, any uh, relationships early on in your career in the Watchmen that kind of lasted throughout the nineties or, or beyond? Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of who they are now. It's, 
it's, it's weird when you think about the people in your life. So there's people in your life. I, I often even forget that somebody. I often forget that somebody was from a band or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of what happened, you know, like Headstones, Junkhouse, um, Watchmen, Big Wreck, you know, The, the Odds, uh, Pursuit of Happiness, Fifty Four Forty, Spirit of the West. Uh, we were all part of a scene at the time, and the scene was the Canadian scene. We each had our own like local scenes, you know, across the country from Vancouver to um, Halifax, say. Um, but we were part of the Canadian scene, and we toured the Canadian circuit. So instead of the Vancouver circuit, we did the whole circuit. And these circuits were run by, um, you know, a, a, or the circuit was would be dictated by a certain amount of clubs that sort held a similar amount of people. So all of these bands touring. 10 months of the year um, doing the same clubs and mostly being booked by the same managers and agents um, or very close, small tight circle of those people. So we were all in the same hotels. Most of our meetings would happen you know, like three o'clock in the morning when you're checking into, you know, the side of a highway in Red Deer <laughs> and, uh, you know, and junk house played the other side of town and Tom Wilson is there and Rusty and, and I'll say, Hey, come on up to the room. We'll have some, you know, enough drinking and hanging out till five or six in the morning. And then, you know, you get up the next day and you repeat it. And the next night you're running to, you know, the headstones, uh, at, you know, after their show. Um, this happened time and time and time again to the point where, you know, you consider all of these people your friends. Like I was getting to know these people as um, acquaintances, but the relationships I was having with them was more constant than relationships that I was having with friends of mine back home because mm-hmm. I was never home. Right. And then the period of time that I toured with the Watchmen and then following the Thornley and a little bit of the rename of Big Wreck after, mm-hmm. um, like in that period of almost two decades, I didn't, I, I, I lost everybody that I knew as childhood friends. Hmm. And I missed that 20 year period where people make adult friends. Hmm. Uh, so I found myself at like 45 years old going, where's, where's my social scene? Like, I don't, I don't know. And, and most, you know, most of the musicians from the twenties who were playing, you know, the, the large majority of them are working jobs or doing something else. There's very few of us who are still, um, you know, actively pursuing a career in music. You know, uh, Tom Wilson has been doing great at it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Rain Maida does it and Matthew Good still does it. But, you know, for the most part, a lot of it has, has, has disappeared. Um, and, uh, you know, do I have friends? Yeah. I mean, Ian, you know, I mean, my, the big wreck was signed by Jay, um, hmm. after the watchman had put out in the trees, I believe it was, these hmm. guys started showing up and it was when we were, I think we were demoing for brand new day working with, uh, shit, I'm not going to remember his name right now. It was around then that Jake played our some of our demos for this brand new band that he had. So they came into the same studio we're at. I think they used our gear and they recorded some demos for what was the demos for uh, pleasure and greed, hmm. not pleasure and the greed, but the in loving memory. First big wreck. So at that point in time, the watchman and Thorn, uh, the watchman and big wreck were kind of, we were in the same camp. Our management was hmm. the same and we were hanging out all the time. They were a brand new band. They were looking for gigs. So they started coming out. And like whenever we were in and around Toronto, they're like close to Toronto, they're up in Barrie or something, they'd come open up for us there. Um, and we became really good friends with these this group of musos from Boston. It was just like, 
who are these crazy guys who are talking like chord names and sort of inversions and different scales and stuff like like serious serious freaking you know nerdy <laughs> tech talk um you know we were we're a band from i mean you know jeez i mean joey and me we we struggled for years just like that doesn't sound like this quite sounds right what if i do this with my finger here it's like you know such we have me and joey have such a way of communicating I mean, I can communicate with them about anything musically. Hmm. Nobody else will understand it because it's just, you know, we're not using the same language <laughs> as everybody else. But when you're put into a, you know, a situation with all these players, these trained Berkeley players, and they're talking yeah. about different stuff, it's, it's, it's a whole other world. So I was, I was fascinated by that because I'd played a little bit of jazz, um, hmm. and I, was, I sort of schooled myself um, with some of the you know, university books. And I was fascinated by Dave Hennings playing and uh, the way him and Forrest played together was just incredible. So long answer to this, uh, you know, did I develop any friendships? Yeah. Um, so the big wreck thing, uh, you know, they, they played with us um, on and off for a couple of years while they were putting that first record out and getting their record deal. And, you know, they went through some struggles with getting the, the getting everything out on that first record. And then suddenly it was out and, hmm. you know, they had a top 10 hit and then another top 10 hit and we were still wanting to do shows. With them, and then it, it just got, quickly got to a point where it's like, how do we finish this off? And that was when, you know, our management team said, let's do a, a big wreck, uh, a watch from big wreck across Canada joint tour. Hmm. We'll flip the opening every night. You know, it'll be one nice, yeah. start one night, big wreck start the next. And we'll bring up a band from Boston to, uh, to be the opener. And we brought up Mayfield four, which was miles Kennedy's band. Huh. And the watchman and big wreck, uh, and the Mayfield four did, um, uh, did a cross Canada arena tour, I think it was. It was mostly well, mostly large venues, yeah. And it was incredible. Um, and my relationship with Big Rec um, continued during that time. Me and Ian became very close friends. Um, and at the last show of that tour in Toronto, Ian met my sister, and that started their relationship, which ended up, you know, they ended up getting married and having uh, children. Um, and then I, me and Ian were hanging out all the time because suddenly he's my brother-in-law. And then Ian were, uh, me and Ian were hanging out at his, at his, this writing room that he had to watch him were on break. Um, and, um, you know, and big wreck were on break and I was hanging out with Ian at this writing room and Seiku rented a bedroom in this place. Um, so, you know, Seiku would come in and lay some drums on this track we're jamming and, and over the course of like what was about six months, we ended up writing a bunch of stuff. And then um, that turned into, you know, that turned into Thornley. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there, there, there are people that, you know, not only sort of, you know, do I still have them in my life, but like, you know, they, they became family through this whole thing. <laughs>
Yeah, I've, I've, been, I've been blessed. I've been blessed with, with so many great people in my life and so many wonderful experiences. You know, I, I came out of Newfoundland. I stopped a guy. You know, it's funny. Remember at the very beginning of this conversation, I said I stopped Jody Mitchell in the, in the elevator. Yeah. I stopped Jody Mitchell in the elevator at the Coca Conference as a, as a 17 or 18-year-old Newfoundland bass player wanting <laughs> to make a career in music. And he said, come to Toronto. And I don't know how many years later, the Watchmen signed with EMI after we left MCA Universal. And who was the A and R guy there? Who was our A and R guy? Jody Mitchell. Wow. So you know, I, I took the advice of this guy in the elevator, and uh, huh. and it steered my entire career to uh, to being now you know fifty two years old and still playing music professionally. You mentioned uh, having a twenty two twenty two month touring kind of right run or cycle of in the trees. Now, uh, how much did that hurt or help the writing of Brand New Day? Yeah. Brand New Day is a special record for me. Um, we went through, a, you know, we, we went through the this amazing honeymoon period uh, as friendship uh, musicians when I joined the band and we wrote and put together in the trees, and then we recorded it. And you know, we had a great, great recording session that was done in Toronto um, at Metalworks. We had Doug Olson who had just worked with, uh, you know, Nirvana. And, and all these great bands and it was like this is this is just the experience this is this is this is amazing and then without even stopping to take a breath we started touring and that touring lasted for 22 months Mm -hmm. and then we got home and we needed a little rest but the band was still in winnipeg but i was in toronto so like Mm -hmm. if we had two weeks off management would be like okay so you got to write for 10 days in the two weeks you know spend some time with your families and stuff but i was still in toronto so I'd get four days home instead of two weeks. Uh, and then we'd go again. So that that was sort of a, a weird thing. And I know that for me, and I think by the time we, we got into Toronto, we, we found a studio in Toronto, uh, a neat little downstairs spot, a beautiful room. Uh, we got Doug Olson again uh, to come produce it. And I just kind of remember showing up and like bringing gear in and thinking, well, what are we going to record? Hmm. And like at the time it didn't seem like a, bad idea but it was also kind of like a like we had some songs but it didn't feel the same way in the trees did in the trees we went in with we went in with a set that we could play from start to back you know you could put us on stage plug us in and we can play that album from start to back without a mistake and that's how we recorded that album we went into brand new day with i don't know how many songs were in that state but i know there was a lot of songs that were you know good ideas let's say right and then we got into the studio and then there was, uh, you know, the usual things you get caught up with the studio is the technical stuff. You know, I suddenly had access, you know, because in the trees it had so much success. And I, I, I guess my, um, my status as a musician amongst other musicians had come up to a point where I could, I had access to things that I didn't have before. Like suddenly, you know, uh, Andrew McNaughton is loaning me Getty Lee's basses and I'm, I've got Getty Lee's wall bass <laughs> and I've got his um, his Rickenbacker double deck, you know, uh, in the studio with me. Huh. And it's like, you know, you got Getty Lee's double deck Rickenbacker. This has got to be on a fucking song. <laughs> the thing is so, the thing has been, hasn't been played in years and it's so badly intonated. I can't get it to sound proper, but it's Getty Lee's instrument. But we got to spend some time trying to get on. Never made it onto a track. But oh, no. like, that was the type of things that was happening. Right. You know, I wanted to play. I wanted to play electric double bass. You know, I ended off. I remember finding a, a double bass in Toronto, an electric one, and getting it and working it into. I think it was Dance Again or something, and and having to experiment with that, only to have that kind of backfire and fail. Hmm. Um, 
we were exploring things that we'd never done before. Like I said, before we went in and we could play song A to song Z and it would be, you know, that's where the album sounded. Now suddenly we went in, we had ideas for songs that were nice songs. I was like, oh, let's put some strings here. Let's put some horns here. And mm. it, it was a completely different experience. And I think the results show, I think it's, I, I love the record. Um, yeah, you know, even too. that one again with the artwork. What can we do with the, with the artwork? You know, my sister was a photographer. I got her to do the photos for the album cover and the design of Brand New Day. Mm. Um, you know, so like, there was still lots of ideas happening in and around it. And we were all conceptually there. And I think the songs were there. I just don't, I, I think we were just a little unfocused. Um, and, 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 it, and it was a lot of expectation and there was, there was just a lot of, it's that second album, yeah, even though it was the third album, right. um, you know, the success of, of, of in the trees, um, was a hard thing to follow up. Mm-hmm. But I think the good thing about that was, you know, by the time we went down to, you know, when, we, when it was like, okay, it's time to do this again, um, we went into Silent Radar with a, a, a much stronger vision, and uh, I think that shows once again. Like, I think, I think when we went in to play Silent Radar, we could play that whole album from, finish, from start to finish as well. You said Brand New Day is a, a special record for you. I'm curious, is there a special song on that record that uh, really still uh, stays with you till this day? About, you know, either the writing of it, the recording of it, the, you know, the, the melody, the lyrics... You know, it's a, it's a special album for me because I really enjoyed the experience of making it with the guys. Mm. The experience of making the record for me, it's the album that I put on every now and again. Like I said, I don't listen to a lot of stuff once it's recorded because mm-hmm. the processes kind of, you know, hurt my ears. Um, but every now and again, I'll hear a song from that album or I'll hear that album and I'll think, oh, I forgot about this song. I <laughs> love this song. Right. But it's it, but it's not the type of album that I would want to put on. Um, but the experience of making it, I think, and I think that's why certain songs react that way to me. Because I remember, oh, I remember when that happened. You know, like I remember that moment, and uh, you know, it, I think it was more of an experience for me than a oh, this is a great song. If that makes sense. There's a, there's a few like I mean there's a lot of hidden gems on that record like a track called The Other Side is really. Mm-hmm. really- Right, you know, some Danny's nicest melodies ever are on that track, and then oh. "Waste Away" is like just like some of the heaviest stuff you guys ever did. You know, him just like scream at the end of the track. You know, it's. I think there was some great stuff on. It. I mean, Doug was doing amazing work too. I mean, he was he was doing incredible uh, incredible audio work, and uh, you know, and this was still back in the day when they were cutting tapes. You know, oh, I mean, yeah. we you know we we'd have, he'd say you know we're taking tomorrow off, guys, and I'm like okay, and I drop in the studio to get something I I forgot. And, you know, he'd be sitting in his room there, like literally like four inches of tape on the entire floor of the room. And he's like, he's got band-aids, band-aids on his fingers, you know, with the razor blades, just cutting tape. Wow. You know, I'm like, what are you doing? He said, well, I thought it would be cool if we reversed this little thing. And Jesus, you know, things that, that you can do on a computer now in a split second, he's yeah. been hours meticulously working on. And that's why that, like, that's why that album is so special. I think it's got great sounds. It's got, Danny sang like an angel on that record. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a different record. It wasn't it wasn't the follow up that, that the rock and roll crowd wanted, perhaps. I don't right. know. Um, and even at you know even at the live shows, it's sort of you know some of those songs are kind of like mm, people don't react. So interesting. You know that doesn't mean that I can't like it. No, no, of course. You not. know everything I've done in the last ten years on my own, most people don't react to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's just what it is. But uh, that shouldn't that shouldn't change the value of what it is. So what was the kind of plan to work that record? Uh, you know, was it the same as in the trees? I mean, did you guys have a different approach in mind as far as touring and where to tour and who to tour with? I mean, nowadays you talk to musicians 
And as much as you talk about the album, you're going to talk about the process and the business. Mm. Artists are trained businessmen these days. Um, we're forced to, you know, the, the, the deconstruction yeah. of the record company uh, into smaller elements, which are now purchasable by artists on a time-based period. For example, you can hire a publicist or a radio tracker or a whatever you want that used to be in a radio in a record company. You can hire them on your own now. Right. And what a lot of artists do is they hire them, they work with them, they learn what they're doing, and then they they do it themselves. Yeah. Um, so we've created a world now where the artists, you know, most artists sit on their computer. You know, most successful artists will sit on their computer for a large part of the day doing computer work, stuff that record companies and labels and publicists used to always do. And that is what is the new current, and that's really cool, and that's what, that's what I do. Um, but back in those days, when it came to what's our plan, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> I mean, we had overall plans. I mean, I mean, you know, Jake, our manager, Jake Gold was the biggest manager in Canada. I mean, he's still a massive powerhouse of an industry professional. Um, he's very smart. Um, he's very aggressive. He is the guy that you want on your team. And when Jake spoke for us, I didn't even need to know what he was talking about. <laughs> and I had full, I went through it. I mean, it might be blindly. Now, Joey, Joey was very in tune with the business and he did uh, keep us up to speed and uh, on whatever we wanted to know. But for the most part, I didn't want to know. I just wanted to play music. and I just wanted to get up in the day and be told where I'm playing music. And I was so, so lucky to have had that for the time that I did. Because I tell you, you know, these days, being a musician and, and working everything your own, I'm fucking exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> it's tiring as fuck. But it's what you got to do, right? And, um, and uh, but back then, no, I mean, when we, you know, after, you know, we recorded the record, the record, you know, we ended off getting a, you know, everything was just dates that you'd get, you know, we'd, right. we'd get a phone call. Um, we didn't even have email back then either. Like it was like, this was like email wasn't the norm. It became the norm, but it was phone. So, you know, Joey would touch base with the office and speak to Shelly who would have information from Jake. And it would be like, Oh, the record has been set for this date. Um, Ralph is working on such and such. He's hoping to get this uh, run from here to here in this area. And we'd kind of have like a year or so planned of kind of where we were going. I didn't know any details, nothing. I showed up, my brain worked on a daily basis. Where, where do I have to be today? You know, Brand New Day takes us to about like 96 or so. I mean, that's right in the heart of, were you aware of um, all the great music that was being made? I mean, I mean, do you have a chance to see shows, listen to albums by your peers? I mean, you know, watch videos of much music. I mean, is that, are you aware of all that stuff or are you just kind of locked in a Watchmen's kind of bubble? I was aware of it but I was also locked in a bit of a bubble. And I, and I tell you the reason I know that because I went from working in a magazine mm-hmm. where, you know, I was getting, you know, we were getting invites to go see a brand new band called Nirvana at the Rivoli in mm-hmm. Toronto, which is a 90s club, huh. uh, you know, for their new album that was coming out, which we had an advanced copy of called Nevermind. Oh, wow. Um, I was getting, you know, the Smashing Pumpkins at the Opera House, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Smashing Pumpkins, and the Pixies on the same bill in a thousand seat club in Toronto. Like, wow. I was so ahead of what was happening in music, working at the magazine, and so, so in touch that when I started with the Watchmen and things took off, I was, I was embarrassed for myself at how out of touch I got. Huh. But there was no streaming. You know, I mean, I right, carried around right. one of those yellow, yellow Sony disc players on yep. a bunch of compact discs. Um, 
yes, things were going on the road, but great, but we were still on the road broke most of the time when like the musicians, like we were on small weekly stipends, which went home to pay your bills. I'd go into a record store. I mean, the only time I got sort of new music was when I was visiting a record company. I'm like, you know, what can you, what can you turn me on to? And they'd give me some new CDs and that would get me through for a while. But the idea of exploring the way that it is now even is, was, was not an option. Um, so, you know, I had my, my 30 or 40 favorite CDs and that's what I took on tour, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you, you, space was limited. You couldn't have any more. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you're on, when you're, you know, we're, we're, we're playing night after night. Um, you know, you see the opening band for a song or two, maybe, um, maybe two songs if they're a great opening band. Uh, but otherwise, you know, you, you're, you can't really go out in the crowd because people want to talk to you. Side of the stage, it sounds sound shit. It's really loud, so you got your earplugs in. If you take your earplugs out, then your ears going to be tired for your show. So, yeah. no, no, you don't really get to do that. I can't tell you how many bands and musicians I'm friends with who I've probably never heard one of their songs <laughs> on record or radio. <laughs> like, really, I, I, you know, it is. Now, that's not to say I'm not a music fan. I, I, I have, a, you know, I am. But I mean, it's, it's like you know, when I come home, it's like everything from Nick Drake. Um, through the Husker Du, um, you know, it, it just bounces all over the place. But when it comes to sort of contemporaries and, and what was happening on the radio and stuff, nah, I knew, I knew, you know, I didn't know all that stuff. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven's Rule. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s Karen Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Until next time, friends. So don't have the strength to be fighting with you The one we can do in three and four going insane